Turns out John's Apocalypse illustrates both functions of satanic language, both the internal and the external, but primarily the external. So it's a great example of demonizing people outside of your group. There's a whole lot that uh, John's Apocalypse is important for with regard to the history of Satan. There's a couple things that I want to deal with. One is that it, there's a sort of pulling together of a lot of the different things we've noticed in the history of Satan so far get pulled together in a particular way by the author of John's Apocalypse. So that the story of Satan that we have in the modern world ultimately derives from John's Apocalypse pulling together of the strands that we've already seen. He's writing what scholars call an apocalypse in terms of genre. First person visionary account, where a Judean sits down and writes what they claim to have had as visions in the first person. I was sleeping and I had a dream and this is what I saw. Or I was awake and an angel appeared to me and God revealed these things to me. There are two things in the backdrop that help us to understand why John, the author of this document, is so pissed off at the Roman Empire. One thing is, John is writing probably a decade or two right after the Roman Empire, the Roman army, has come into Israel and has, first of all, slaughtered thousands and thousands of Judeans, thousands and thousands of Jews, but also has destroyed the central symbol of Judean culture, the temple. In 70 CE, the Romans destroy the temple in Jerusalem. So that's one incident. Another incident that has happened in the 60s CE is that the Emperor Nero is in charge in the 60s, just before that Judean War begins, that ends with the destruction of the temple. And there's a fire in Rome. People start blaming Nero himself for starting it because he wanted to renovate that part of Rome. And the idea is, well, he just sort of burned it down so it would speed up the whole clearing away of things so that he could build whatever he wanted there. People point fingers at Nero. He then has a strategy. Well, who can I blame for the fire and who can I say caused the fire? Through some sort of network of his officials, he hears about these disliked Christians, followers of a figure named Christ. And he decides he's going to target them and he basically says the Christians, followers of Jesus, who actually was an executed criminal, started this fire. And he has a public display of public slaughtering of a number of Christians to punish for the fire having been started. In Tacitus, you can read about this, right? A Roman historian. Regardless of all the actual historical details involved there, all that matters for us is that John isn't going to like that. Those two incidents, the mass slaughter of God's people, as John would see it, in Judea during the Judean War, and public slaughter of followers of Jesus, those are sort of the model of what the empire is like for this author. Not for every early Christian, though. Not for every Judean, even. This, this extreme view. Let's move on to looking at John's Apocalypse. First of all, this internal use of the rhetoric of Satan uh, within John's Apocalypse itself. John's Apocalypse is a series of visions. The first vision is the vision of a figure that ends up being Jesus in the way that John's Apocalypse is understanding it, an angelic figure who turns out to be Jesus. In that first vision, the angelic figure passes on, through the visions, messages to Christian groups in Asia Minor. Depends which letter you look at, whether or not there's positive things or negative things. 
about these followers of Jesus at a particular locale. We want to focus, just for understanding this internal use of the tenor language, we want to look at the ones he dislikes, which is Thyatira and Pergamon, or primarily negative things to say about them. Take a look at Pergamon, chapter 2, verses 12 and following. And to the angel of the assembly in, in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. Point is, he's condemning certain followers of Jesus for the teachings they have, and he's aligning them with Satan by aligning them with figures of the Hebrew Bible who lead people astray to worship the gods of other peoples. Thyatira. Once again, there's people there who tolerate the woman Jezebel. Jezebel is a figure from the Hebrew Bible. It's using a figure from the Hebrew Bible to condemn someone. The one about Thyatira finishes with this whole thing that this Jezebel figure teaches the deep things of Satan. These are followers of Jesus that are being talked about here. Members of the community that this author has an objection to. It's the internal use of satanic language. Then there's this phrase, synagogue of Satan, when he's writing to Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Judeans and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, etc. The synagogue of Satan. We don't get much else besides that. But once again, what's clear is he's condemning other people who are claiming to belong to the groups that are being written to here. So those are further examples of the internal use of satanic language. What's going to happen throughout the rest of the visions, though, is John is going to be portraying through these visions a whole satanic world around the Christians, a world dominated by the powers of Satan, which are going to be equated with the powers of the Roman Empire. And he's going to be aligning these people he condemns in opening letters with that whole satanic world. So it's important to recognize this isn't just an aside. Oh, I'll begin with a few letters. It doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of my visions, but I'll, no, these things are integrated. He's further demonizing the other followers of Jesus that he disagrees with by characterizing them as being in league with Satan, which is the equivalent of being in league with the empire. Let's look at the rest of the material on Satan in uh, John's Apocalypse here. I want to point out a few things to you before we get into the most important passages. Look at chapter 9. There's an interesting figure here, and I'm not quite sure what to make of it. But it's important to note in connection with some of what we've learned so far. In this part of the visions, John is having a vision of God seated on a throne. And then a scroll is brought in. And the whole thing is, the scroll is sealed. How do we unseal the scroll? There are seven, seven seals on the scroll. And they have to find someone who can unseal it. In the vision that John sees, it's a lamb. The lamb is obviously going to be identified with Jesus who is slaughtered as a lamb. And it's only the lamb that can open the seals. The lamb comes and opens one seal after another. And then John sees more visions in connection with the unsealing of the seals. And often with each of the seals, there's angels doing all kinds of stuff. 
In this section here, in chapter 9, we get to the opening of the seventh seal, so the last of the seven seals. And then a whole lot of trumpets get blown. Guess what number of trumpets get blown? Seven. And so we're on the fifth trumpet now in chapter 9, but look at this. I'm not sure who this figure is, but it links up with some, in some way with some of the material we've been reading about the history of Satan. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. Stars, did we talk about this? And planets for the ancient people in the ancient world are the equivalent of gods and or angels. Who was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. So there's a bottomless pit that's going to be important later on for the, what happens to Satan later in this, uh, these visions. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the f- smoke of a great furnace. This pit is full of fire. This is essentially further development of hell that we saw with those fallen angels being put into the pit in First Enoch and the sh- jagged rocks being put on top of them. Well, this is further development of that sort of imagery I would suggest to you. Let's get to chapter 12, though. In this one chapter, a whole lot happens to the story of Satan. A whole lot gets brought together in a way that was not the case before. And this subsequently comes to play a role in how Satan's story develops. Let's take a look at it. We're on to another vision. It's the end of the vision of God seated on the throne. And now we're visionary is going on to other visions he's had. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth and anguish for delivery. And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his heads. Let me pause now. The author is going to soon identify the great red dragon with Satan and devil. He's going to use both those terms. This is the first time explicitly that Leviathan, that you already know about from reading about the combat myth, Leviathan from the Hebrew Bible, that's the equivalent of Tiamat in the Babylonian story and the equivalent of Yom in the Canaanite combat myth that you've read about in Beal. This is the first time that that mythical monster of old is explicitly identified as Satan in the history of Satan. Momentous, you can imagine, in how subsequent pictures of Satan develop because this book is in the New Testament, because it's used by Christians. It's the main image of Satan that they build on. Notice also this with seven heads and ten horns. You guys didn't read Daniel for this uh, course. You're not required to, but if you want to figure that one out, go to the book of Daniel, because in Daniel, the author of that apocalypse has a vision of a beast with numerous horns, and uh, this seems to be hearkening back to the book of Daniel as well. So it's pulling together things from Daniel in terms of the depiction of evil, things from the Leviathan figure from the Hebrew Bible in terms of the depiction of evil, tying it in explicitly with the opponent figure from the Hebrew Bible, the Satan figure that we knew wasn't evil personified back in the Hebrew Bible, but now is evil personified. It's the first explicit identification and pulling together of all these things together. Quite a, a shift in the story of Satan that results because of this. This dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Remember, the stars are angels. And the dragon stood before the woman 
who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, etc. The point here and the meaning of the story for John, it seems, is that the woman is Israel giving birth to the person who bears the rod of iron, which is the king that's going to set, reestablish Israel and reunite Israel. In other words, this is a messiah, messianic figure, the anointed king figure that's being born here. And Satan waiting to devour that baby. Pulling together so many things and tying it in with this Judean's focus on Jesus. He believed Jesus was the Judean messiah to establish God's final kingdom. Look what happens next, which we're familiar with from the Dead Sea Scrolls to some degree. Now war arose in heaven, Michael, who's the archangel on the good side, right? And his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The ultimate combat that's part of this apocalyptic worldview where we've been studying. And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called Diabolos, the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, his anointed one, have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So it's there bringing in the Job sort of thing that you read about in Beal. This, the angelic figure as the prosecutor in the case, the accuser in a case, but obviously now it's being associated with a personified evil sort of understanding of Satan. Then the woman escapes with the child and the serpent goes after them and tries to get them and continues to make war against people who are aligned with Jesus, basically, are pursued by the dragon. Now, one thing that's possible here is that John's apocalypse already knows of the story we're going to get into in a moment about the Adam, from the life of Adam and Eve. In other words, the identification of Satan's sort of evil conniving with the story of the serpent in the Genesis account. Maybe John's apocalypse knows it. And this language of serpent is part of why that might be the case. Something else to tell you, though, is the dragon and serpent are interchangeable quite well. So the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was done back in the 3rd century BCE, the 200s BCE. When that was translated, some of the occurrences of Leviathan were translated as serpent, Ophis, in Greek. Some of them were translated as dragon, drachon, is the Greek word, drachon that we get our word dragon from. And so all this is related to that Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that's familiar to the author of this apocalypse here. But it's pulling together perhaps even the serpent of Genesis account with the serpent Leviathan with Satan. So chapter 13 goes on. So far, so good. We don't have much about the Roman Empire explicitly. But what happens next is we've had this image of a great dragon that's Satan, who's out to devour and destroy God's people. Right? This is the image we have already. What's going to happen next is there's going to be visions of other beasts who are more directly aligned with the empire, with the Roman Empire. 
And then what's going to happen later on? There's going to be a whore riding on Satan. And the whore is Babylon. Who's Babylon? It's Rome. Remember that Babylon also destroyed the temple. So this is why Babylon just a clear reference to Rome in the, the 90s CE, at least it is. We're now getting from the story of Satan being pulled together in a particular way to showing that story to be directly involved in politics of the time. That the world around you, people that I'm writing to, John's Apocalypse is saying, is demonic. The Roman imperial power is satanic. The emperor himself is a beast that we're going to read about now. So chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems upon its horns, indicating it's a kingly figure, and a blasphemous name upon its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a beard bears, and its mouth, a whole lot of stuff. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. The Roman emperor, this author is saying, is in his position of power because Satan gave him the power. The emperor's quite clearly identified, this, this beast is quite clearly identified with the emperor Nero and with imperial power generally. And so Nero is basically Satan's assistant. One of its heads of this set beast from the sea seemed to have a mortal wound. It was dead at some point. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth followed the beast with wonder. Men worshipped the dragon, Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, the Roman emperor. I need to give you more evidence for that, but trust me so far, but that's what's taught, being talked about here, saying who is like the emperor, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it. And then there's a second beast that arises in chapter 13, 11 and following. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. So one beast from the sea, another beast from the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Sounds an awful lot like Satan. He speaks like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its present. Remember the first beast is the emperor and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, worship the emperor. Now this one is a little less clear what political figure is in mind, but there's a couple options. One is the Roman governor of Asia, this area that's being addressed, is responsible to some degree for the imperial cult that involves worshiping the emperors in this area of Asia Minor. Another option, possibly, because the way it's portrayed here is they facilitate worshiping the first beast, facilitate worshiping the emperor. The next option, possibly in mind of John's vision here, is the imperial cult high priest. So the temples, the official temples of Asia Minor, that were devoted to the emperor as a god, had a high priest at their head that organized the whole thing. The first beast is clearly Nero. The key piece of evidence for that is this reference to the mortal wound that was healed, and then subsequent references to the beast having been killed and coming again. In the Roman world generally, there was a legend that the Emperor Nero hadn't really died, or had died, but either way, he was going to return. And so those legends we know of from all kinds of places and different Greek and Roman writers of the time. 
And we also know it from Judean literature, including John's Apocalypse. But what it tells you is that the author here is telling you it's Nero. Is telling you that first beast is Nero as the evil emperor in line with Satan. So Roman imperialism and Satan are together, aren't they? For John's Apocalypse. Here we have the demonization of an external power. Let's look to 17 and 18 to see how that gets even underlined further, the demonization of the Roman Empire. Back in 586 BCE, Babylon destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and took away the Judeans into exile. We have referred to that here. So you guys know that. So Babylon, for centuries, by the time John's Apocalypse is written, Babylon is sort of the image of the evil empire for Judeans and is the image of an, an empire that destroys God's dwelling place for the opponent of God, let's put it. It's already, a, the typology for that is already there. And what John's Apocalypse does is talks about Rome as Babylon. And then we're interested in seeing the language he uses. Take a look at chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, the great whore. So this is judgment, the final judgment of things. And it includes the fall of Rome. The judgment of the great whore who is seated upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have begun drunk. Everyone sort of going along with this whore and having a big party in the image that John is portraying here. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Same beast. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and bedecked with golden jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. So the angel, in a visionary account like this, usually explains to the visionary what it means. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit. There's the reference to the Nero figure. And go to perdition. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And then it goes on to explain that its heads refer to kings and that this beast makes war on the lamb. So there's a lamb opposed to the beast, and there's a battle between these two figures and the visions that are seen. Chapter 18 goes on to the final judgment of the whore Babylon that is the equivalent of the fall of the Roman imperial power. After this, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk the wine of her impure passion. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. 
They're putting it nicely in the English translation. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich with the wealth of her wantonness. Come out of her, my people, is the next thing called, right? John having God reveal in the vision that God calls on followers of Jesus to come out of contact with the whore. Come out of her. Do not have anything to do with the whore. Do not have anything to do with Roman imperialism. What they're supposed to do concretely, I have no idea. But there's a call here to distance yourself from anything related to Roman imperialism. It's a bit hard to in the cities of Asia Minor. Because they're, they're Greek cities, yes, but they're dominated by Roman imperialism and it's already saturated into the culture of the time. As we mentioned, there's already worship of the emperors. It's a common custom in the cities of Asia Minor as well. That's probably in the mind of this author when he's thinking of sort of the worst offenses of Roman imperialism. It's war coming and killing Judeans in Israel. It's claiming that you deserve to be worshipped as a god, imperial cult. Those two things are the worst offenses, it seems, in the eyes of this Judean author writing in the late first century. And he condemns Roman imperialism, condemns the Roman Empire as ultimate evil. Let's look at one last thing in John's Apocalypse before we take a break. Take a look at chapter 19 to 20. This is the final sort of judgment of Satan. Jesus is presented in the end of chapter 19 as the lamb who's about to be wed to New Jerusalem, the bride. Obviously the bride Jerusalem contrasts to the whore Babylon. And the lamb contrasts to the beast that Babylon was riding on. Right? There's always two of everything in here. And the, uh, there's talk of Jesus being a warrior here to make war against the, the evil powers and to sort of fulfill and bring to fruition God's final intervention to bring judgment and establish his kingdom. And then you have reference to a lake of fire at the end of chapter 19 that burns with sulfur, which may relate back to chapter 9. Now chapter 20, let's look at it. It's sort of the culmination of this whole judgment. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. He bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be loose for a little while. So the vision has the dragon, Satan, imprisoned for a thousand years, Christ reigning for a thousand years on earth, then the dragon being let loose, Satan being let loose, and then verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are at the four corners of the earth, uh, that is uh, the places mentioned in Ezekiel, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell, in other words. This is the beginnings of hell, right? The development of it. And sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Sometimes it's destruction for these guys. Sometimes it's eternal torture. Here it's eternal torture the way it's expressed. Although later, in a few verses later, it's going to be uh, destruction. Look a little bit further down a few verses, so towards the end of chapter 20. And the sea gave up the dead in it. This is the final resurrection before the final judgment when God establishes his kingdom. Death and Hades, personified figures here. Death and Hades. 
gave up the dead in them, and all were judged by what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So the dragon's thrown in there, his beast is thrown in there, the guy who assisted worshiping the beast is thrown in there, and now death, as personified in Hades, the underworld, are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And you guys know about Moat as well, Canaanite myth. Moat, death that is slayed by Baal. And then in the Hebrew Bible, that idea is taken on that Yahweh slayed Moat. In Isaiah, and that passage may be known or familiar or just become part of the mindset of this author. So it's also the ancient chaos monster that is the personified death being put to death. 